Welcome to The Lead, a podcast about how to get ahead in the news industry from the people who did. I'm Kira Posey. On today's episode of The Lead, I'm talking to Sean Heenan. Sean is a freelance reporter, and he also covers housing for the Atlanta Civic Circle. He has bylines in the New York Times, Atlanta Magazine, and Vice, just to name a few. Sean and I actually met back in 2021 when I interviewed him about his experience covering evictions amid expiring eviction moratoriums that were put in place due to the economic hardship caused by the pandemic. You can find his perspective on this on the Covering Poverty website, which is another initiative from the Cox Institute at coveringpoverty.uga.edu. Today, Sean and I talk about the importance of holding public officials accountable, balancing accountability with objectivity, and what drives him to keep covering housing. And a quick note about our conversation before we get started, Sean and I talked when there was a particularly large thunderstorm rolling through Georgia. You might hear thunder and rain in the second part of our episode, and I just wanted to say thank you in advance for your patience with our audio. But before we get to our conversation, here's a word from our sponsor. This episode is produced by the Cox Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership at the University of Georgia's Grady College. To learn more, go to grady.uga.edu slash Cox Institute. Now, here's the lead. And I'm here with Sean Keenan. Sean, thank you so much for joining us today. How are you doing? I'm terrific. How are you? Good, good. I'm great. Thank you. And I'm so excited to chat with you. Um, I'm just going to hop right into our questions. So, Sean, you currently work as a freelance journalist and as a housing reporter for the Atlanta Civic Circle. And, of course, you study journalism in college at Georgia State University. But I'm curious, and I want to take it back to the beginning, Like, what initially made you want to be a journalist? And did you always know that that was the path that you wanted to take? No, not at all. Uh, I kind of stumbled into it. I was going to the University of Mississippi for my freshman and sophomore year studying uh Mandarin Chinese and business. So I was, I was all hooked up to be a billionaire. I was on track to get recruited by the CIA. Um, and I, I should, I should emphasize that that is a joke. Uh, so nobody thinks I was actually going into the CIA, but, um, I was just like kind of making it in those courses, but I was acing my writing classes and I was like, mm, maybe I shouldn't try to become a businessman. Um, I'm going to transfer back in state. I was, I was from Georgia. Um, and so I was like, all right, I will save myself a ton of money if I just transfer back in state. I went to Georgia State University and thought like, perhaps mistakenly, what is the most practical and cool writing job? And I was like, journalism, obviously. Everybody, I don't, I don't know what the, the alternatives were. I sure as hell wasn't going to be a poet or anything like that. But so I went to Georgia <laughs> State. I joined the student paper there and I thought I wanted to be a movie critic um, so you can see that like the, the logic side of my brain is not working during this entire period of my life, thinking I could just like go and be a movie critic for my, for my career. But yeah. thankfully, when you join uh, Georgia State's student paper, The Signal, there's this two-week probationary period where you have to be on the news team so that they can teach you the foundation of you know, um, reporting habits and, uh, and skills. And during that two weeks, I just fell in love immediately. Like... I was just blown away by the access and the influence that you can have even at the student level. Like by, by my first week on the job, I had met the mayor, the police chief, the fire chief, interviewed people I never thought I'd be in the room with and was just totally entranced by, by the job. And like 
I think I ended up writing one movie review my whole college career, and that was just kind of a one-off because I really hated the Batman and Superman movie. Um, but yeah, so uh, I guess that's that's the roundabout way of saying I accidentally became a journalist. I, I just like stumbled into it and fell in love pretty much immediately. Yeah, that's so interesting. And of course, like since you know, like that time at Georgia State. Uh, you've gone on to be a freelance reporter and write for the Atlanta Civic Circle, where you cover housing, which, like you mentioned, is a lot different from writing movie reviews. Um, so I want to ask about a story that you've reported on extensively and you're working on currently for the Atlanta Civic Circle. Um, I'm going to talk about like the Forest Cove apartment story that you're working on. So you're currently reporting on the story of the Forest Cove apartments ordered demolition in December, just for our listeners' background. An Atlanta judge condemned the dilapidated complex and gave the complex's owners until March 1st to to relocate 211 families. So you wrote that the complex has been plagued with rodents, roaches, mold, sewage leaks, and violent crime for years. And of course, like the impact of this is big. It affects 211 families and it's causing a nearby elementary school to close since children will be relocated. So can you talk about the significance of this story? And also like, what does it tell you about greater trends in housing policy and governance? Um, yes, Forest Cove, is probably the sat maybe the saddest story I've ever tracked because it's just like though it is this glaring example of like corporate negligence and what happens when um, you know public officials don't uh, do the most that they can to help their constituents. It's also like this microcosmic issue that represents so many broader problems that happen not just in Metro Atlanta but like the nation over. So. Forest Cove, I mean, has been, first of all, I, th I think it's important to stay on top of the story just because without, like, if we move the spotlight away from that property, then who knows what's going to happen to it? Because for years, it went just totally neglected, falling apart. Um, yeah, people literally getting sick because of where they have to live. It's, it's, it's Section 8 housing. So um, these are people who are living on, uh, like, you know, to some extent, the government's dime, and they they have they have to pay like a, a small fraction of the rent, but it's it's a lot of people who have no other option, and when journalists allow stuff like that to go unheard or unread about, that's when things can really slip through the cracks. So, Forest Cove, though it's probably the worst issue, is not the only place of its kind. Like it it helps give this terrible example of how the city is not doing a great enough job at preventing properties from becoming blighted. And when properties become blighted, it's not doing a good enough job at punishing the property owners who allow these places to slip into disrepair like this. So Forest Cove is far from the only place that, uh, you know, people are just trapped living in squalor, but um, it's perhaps like the best lens into that problem. Yeah. Policies and governance can have extreme consequences that negatively impact people's lives. And it's very difficult uh, because shelter is a basic need that everybody requires. It affects every part of your life. So like, what motivates you to cover, keep covering housing? Is it that there are issues like this that need to be brought to light and people need to be aware of it? Or is it for another reason? I mean, you, you nailed it. Shelter is a basic need. Um, like housing is the centerpiece of this whole spread of issues that we have in Metro Atlanta and Georgia. It's like this keystone issue that so many other factors are impacted by, like where you live and how you live immediately dictates your health and safety, 
whether your children go to good schools, whether they can stay in those good schools. I mean, like if you don't have housing stability, your children could be hopping from like school district to school district. And, um, you know, I, I, I didn't move around a lot as a kid. So I don't, I think a lot of people don't realize that when you go school to school, it's not on this uniform curriculum where you're learning multiplication tables one day. And then so is everybody else in the state. So like if, if a kid is like, um, if their parents are having trouble maintaining their housing, and they're going from one school to another, they could all, all of a sudden be learning about like, you know, long division when they t- didn't fully appreciate multiplication tables yet. And then like they get shuffled around again and um, it creates this like pipeline to uh, poverty and crime. And yeah, I mean, it, housing stability is like one of the greatest gifts a person can have. And it's, I mean, it just goes back to the Forest Cove issue. Like, Atlanta has one of the worst housing affordability crises in the in the country, and if nobody talks about it, like if we don't religiously talk about it, it it's just going to get worse. And I mean, obviously, we're not perhaps not moving the needle as much as we'd like to. It's it's this this like mammoth issue, but um, yeah, what keeps me motivated just just the fact that like if uh, if people don't talk about how people are able to to stay in their homes or what happens if they can't. I mean, where you live determines, uh, you know, where you can have a job. Are you close to transit? And something, excuse me, something I'm exploring right now is um, this problem of uh, most of our uh, affordable housing units in the city are located in these heavily car dependent areas. So, you know, if, if you can't hop on a train or a bus and get to work, maybe you can't work and then maybe you can't pay rent and then maybe you have to go to another um you know another apartment complex and then maybe you end up at uh, you know last resort kind of place like uh, forest cove and um it's important to keep public officials and corporate interests feet to the fire on these issues because as much as you want to believe that powerful people are gonna help others out of the goodness of their heart um, sometimes they need a little nudge. On that note, something that, you know, was one of like the first tenets of journalism school is remaining objective and um, being accurate. So, and of course, a lot of the work that you do, like you said, is holding public officials and business entities and larger institutions accountable. So how can journalists do that, hold these entities accountable while remaining objective? And is that possible? And can the two exist with each other? I think so. I guess in theory, everybody's got everybody's got their opinions, which I think is what makes journalism both a science and an art form. Um, because no, no matter how hard you try, you're always going to inject a little bit of yourself into the story. Every, everybody approaches journalism in, the, in their own fashion, um, but I think it's important to try to approach things uh, from from a logical and a compassionate a place, but not necessarily um, an overtly emotional place. So, like. I can recognize when public officials are not doing the utmost when it comes to trying to fight for housing equity or, um, you know, wage parity or civil rights, anything. You, you can tell when people are not doing the best possible job, but it's important not to be, um, like, personally angry or, or emotional about it. Like. Like nine times out of 10, when um, somebody seems to not be doing a good job, it's not because they're evil. It's just, you know, there, there are innumerable factors that go into 
uh, how a person is able to, to govern or how, um, you know, a, a corporate leader is able to, to rule a company or, you know, run uh, properties or things like that. I guess maybe mistakenly, like to remain objective, you almost have to be uh, a little bit of an optimist, I guess. There's no like silver bullet approach to it. Um, and everybody comes to journalism like having defined or in the process of defining their own boundaries. That's why there are so many different forms of journalism. Like I, I try my best to be like a newspaper man. Um, but I know that there's also plenty of activist journalism in Atlanta and elsewhere. And so you got to find out where you fit on that spectrum. Personally, I think the best way to have an impact and to, um, you know, foster, uh, credibility is to remain as objective as, as I humanly, uh, can be. Um, but like, you know, that's, that's not the approach for some people. I mean, some, some people, they, they partake in uh, activist journalism. And I think there's also, um, there's room for that, but it's just when, when your job is information broker, there shouldn't be too much outside like emotional influence on your work. Like such a huge part of this job is cultivating relationships. And when you start to become part of the story rather than just being the storyteller, it, you know, it makes it hard for you to, to maintain those, um, those communication, like those cordial relationships with people, cordial and productive relationships. You know, I could, you know, if, if I just want to speak from the heart about um, Forest Cove and what I think happened there and, you know, my suspicions about the motivations behind the people who allowed that to happen, they probably wouldn't answer my phone calls. Um, and so I, I think that's, that's how, that's the, those are the boundaries that I've established and everybody does those differently. The Atlanta Civic Circle produces civic journalism, informing the public about critical issues facing communities in Atlanta. And its goal, one of its goals, is to provide solutions-oriented reporting. So how do you include solutions in your reporting process, if at all? Or what is your general approach to including solutions in your process? So solutions journalism is definitely something that I'm um, pretty new to. Or, you know, I've been practicing it, I guess, for the last two years with Atlanta Civic Circle. But it's still like in some ways it's still foreign because I've just been very classically trained as as a newspaper reporter. Um, but a, a lot of uh, like the seeking out solutions relies on you having that network of contacts like I just talked about. Because um, you know this is one of the problems we're having with Forest Cove is that though it is like this microcosm of other issues. It is one of the worst of its kind in the country. And so in, with some subjects, I can call a bunch of my, uh, you know, my sources in the housing industry and be like, hey, um, how does rent control work in New York? Would it work in Georgia? Why wouldn't it work in Georgia? And then I can write a whole story about how rent control is you know, a possible solution, which frankly, I mean, I'm, I'm like getting too much into the abstract because a lot of people say rent control would not work here just because of the way that our government and economy is set up. But, you know, just, just an example. So a, a lot of finding solutions, I'm trying to think of like my latest solutions journalism story. Uh, I got, I got some of it's coming out, um, later today. 
about this legislation going through the state house right now that um, that would enact extra restrictions um, before a city can rezone a bunch of property. And a lot of the housing advocates that I've been talking to say that that is just going to encumber an already arduous process of trying to uh, get affordable housing developed. I mean, right now in the city, there's, you got to jump through a lot of hoops if you want to get a single family property rezoned so that you could build, uh, you know, say a small apartment complex. And in many cases, you just can't do it at all. So the solutions approach to something like that is look elsewhere. I mean, Georgia is not famous. It's Georgia's legislature is not famous for um, being really interested in housing affordability. So you look where other places are doing that right. So, you know, I'll call up some um, housing expert sources of mine and be like, you know, what's the gold standard right now in um, in zoning policy and upzoning, which means like just rezoning things so that uh, you could use the land for more more stuff, more apartment units, maybe like a tiny home in the backyard, whatever. Um, and so these people I call, like, who's I talking to yesterday? I talked to uh, this guy, Eric Kronberg, who's an architect with uh, Kronberg Urbanists and Architects, and also um, like a member of this advocacy group, Neighbors for More Neighbors. And he's like, well, look at North Carolina, I think, and California, both of which just passed laws that allow people to um, to build, I think, like four units of housing where historically only like one suburban style house would be allowed. So now I can present that as a solution without like actively advocating for it. Just saying like, can Georgia take a page from North Carolina's playbook to, um, you know, bolster the housing stock or something like that. So that's, I mean, that's just like one example, but, um, yeah, solutions journalism is, it's all about presenting possible solutions, uh, where they might not fit in your standard hard news piece that you might read in the AJC or something, but not, it's not activist journalism. I don't think because while I have presented the solutions, I'm not like lobbying for them. Um, that's, I mean, that's all one of those, that's all that conundrum of like, you know, where do you draw your boundaries? Because obviously I do have opinions about a lot of this stuff. Um, I think I could say without like fracturing my journalistic integrity that I care about affordable housing, that I want us to produce more of it, that I don't want to see our like, you know, our service workers and our hourly workers being pushed out of town because we want to build another the next hot mixed use development. Thank you for that, because I think that towards the end of my time as an undergraduate, we started talking about what solutions journalism was. So I think it's always useful to like see how that's actually like done when you're reporting on different topics. And especially when you're reporting on housing, like how can you like, where do the intersections of that lie? So that, so thank you. So I have one last question for you. And I ask this to everybody that comes on the podcast because everybody has different but extremely useful advice. So I'm wondering if you have any advice for aspiring journalists looking to break into the field. This sounds so corny, but uh, I think it's really important, especially for aspiring journalists, especially for like college level reporters, to understand how important this job is. Um, you know, I was I was the news editor at Georgia State Student Paper, and we had 
not often, but like now and again, we'd have like, you know, a new recruit come in and think that the student paper was like just a club and you could write pretty much a book report every week and, um, you know, wipe your hands of it and go out. No, like journalism at every level is like, is professional journalism. We're at this point where anybody on the street can be a journalist. Like they're, they're not all good journalists, but like, you know, we're at the point where you're competing with every 14 year old with a cell phone and you have to take it really seriously. So even at the college level, your work impacts people. And that's something that I learned not, not the hard way, but like the very real way, like your, your work, um, your work affects people. And while it's important not to let that, uh, dictate how you approach any journalistic project. Like, you know, there, there are going to be times when, um, you know, you'll write a story and be like, all right, maybe this person's going to get fired because I write this story. Um, you got to be able to like compartmentalize and be like, like, I don't want to be so, uh, so blunt about it, but like to an extent, like not my problem. My, my job is, educating and informing people and um you know it's important not to be vindictive or anything like that i'm not saying like go and chase the stories and try to get people fired um i'm just saying that you know everything you put on paper is going to have an impact and you have to be able to weigh the um i guess like balance the the importance of getting information out to people with like how it's actually going to affect them when it gets to them and obviously at the end of the day, the job is just getting the information out. Also, I mean, this, this is like, should be simple and known, but like I, I, I've seen some journalism students uh, delude themselves before. You can't be in this job for, uh, for money and fame. <laughs> there's just, there's not a lot of money in it. There's not a lot of fame in it. Uh, if you go into this thinking you're going to be uh you know, Anderson Cooper, you better be really good looking and really smooth because like not, not everybody can do that. And there's, you know, um, this job is like, I feel like I said this maybe the last time we talked and I felt like a schmuck for it, but, um, this job is like almost a public service. You know, we're, we're paid shit. We're, uh, especially after, let's say after the Trump era, I feel like we're kind of still in the Trump era, but like, <laughs> you got to have thick skin. That's another thing. Like, so, you know, don't, don't go into it thinking every, it's going to be like, you know, just sunshine and daisies all the time. <laughs> if, if you stay on the hard news journalism path, you're going to get hate mail. You, you gotta, um, yeah, you just gotta be tough. I mean, it's, it's a really tough job, but if, if you really care about it, it's the best job in the world. Yeah, thank you for that that advice and for that that insight because I think it's like it's easy to talk about the benefits of be, what, what being a journalist is like that public service, but it's important to talk about those realities too. And this emphasizes like even despite all that, like if you've experienced that, like your work is incredibly important. So like thank you for continuing it despite those difficulties. Well, thank you for talking about it. I, I think it's important to have these conversations. Thanks again to Sean for joining us on this episode. I'm your host, Kira Posey. Our producer is Dr. Keith Herndon, the executive director of the Cox Institute. 
To keep up with the lead and hear more from media leaders, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify, and be sure to follow us on Twitter. We're at The Lead Podcast. See you next time.